following podcast is sponsored in part by the Blue Ridge Institute for Theological Education and Birmingham Theological Seminary. For more information about these institutions, please visit their websites at bright-va.org. That's B-R-I-T-E-V-A.org or bts.education. And now, here is Larger for Life, a podcast on the Westminster Larger Catechism. Hey friends, welcome back to another edition of Larger for Life. My name is Sean Morris. I'm one of your hosts, one of several here, and we are so glad to have you all join us again. We're getting ready here in just a few seconds to study our way through Westminster Larger Catechism question number 13, and I'm here with the whole crew. But before we get into our preliminary introductions and all that, I need to give a brief little greeting to one of our young listeners. We're so glad that uh, all sorts of different folks are listening to this podcast uh, series that we're producing, and we've been getting lots of encouraging feedback. We've got folks of all ages, it sounds like, including even some young children who are listening along. So I just wanted to give a a brief hello to one of our young listeners, little Anna Maria out in Little Rock, Arkansas. If you're listening, hope you're doing well. Hope you're enjoying the show. And you tell your daddy to repent. He knows what he did, and we love him anyway. So thanks, Anna Maria. Hope you enjoy the show today and in the weeks to come. And uh, we've got listeners from all over. We've got friends and connections from all over. And we figured that it was worth it was worth mentioning to our listeners that just in case we have a little blip or interruption or speed bump in terms of recording. That's because a lot of our schedules are getting a little a little uh, haywire here in the next several weeks, uh, not least of which is because our our brother Nick is in the midst of uh, uh, life changes and uh, nation changes, nation state changes. Uh, and I'll let him speak more about that here in just a second. But he's been pastoring for a number of years, uh, laboring in Stuttgart, Germany, and he's recently taken a call back in here in the, the old U.S. of A. And so, you know, with the transatlantic flights and all that kind of thing, it might be hard to do some recording. So if we are, if we miss a week or two, we have a bump in our, a hiccup in our schedule here or there, folks, just bear with us. We'll make sure we get back on track. But I should say before Nick speaks that, you know, he, he's going from, he's going from the land of schnitzel uh, to the land of cowboys. And he is a church pastor and he's going to be shepherding in that land, but he's not starting a cowboy church. Let the record show he is pastoring a fine reformed PCA church, but not a cowboy church. Is that right, Nick? Yeah, that's right. I just want to give a quick shout out to Christ Presbyterian Church in New Braunfels. I'm thrilled that uh, I've been called to be their senior pastor. And I guess at present, I'm still pastor elect until um, I go through the whole process and am installed. Uh, But uh, yeah, we're looking forward to it. The Lord is merciful. Uh, as we come home, the Lord's also been really good to the church in Stuttgart, and uh, there's a, a godly man coming behind us. So, uh, yeah, we're thrilled about it, and uh, I'm excited to be in the land of brisket and tacos, uh, even more so than cowboys. So, uh, the Lord's good. Are they Amen. breakfast tacos? Absolutely, but they can only be eaten at breakfast time. And I, from what I understand, there's quite a phenomenal... Uh, water park there in the New Braunfels area. And as I understand it, I think we're going to record an episode early next summer of Larger for Life on location uh, floating down the Lazy River at the Schlitterbahn. Is that correct? Yeah, and uh, we've even got lined up that Pastor Matt Adams is going to lead a belly flop competition. And uh, anybody that wants to come out, be part of the first Larger for Life belly flop competition, we'd love to see you there. And oh, for that day, what a great day that'll be. 
I've been practicing. <laughs> I don't know that I want to see that. It's going to be the most glorious sight ever. Glorious, um, Gary McCall. At, glorious. Glorious. Uh, as I belly flop into the lazy river and get spinning Weber's uh, nice recording microphone all wet. It's going to be glorious. Fantastic. <laughs> so I mean, we had spin practicing various ninja moves on bouncy castle inflatables a few weeks ago. And now we've got Matt Adams doing practice rounds of belly flops into the big old lazy river. We're just all kinds of athletic prowess around here at Larger for Life. All kinds. Yeah. Don't don't ever just say that we have mental muscle. Uh, we've got uh, physical muscle, flab. Uh, we, we've got the best uh, going in the podcast game. That's right. Because we're here to serve you, the people. Absolutely. <laughs> Lots of flab. All kinds. All kinds. <laughs> You know, to bring it to bring it full circle, we're just like a properly cooked brisket, kind of smoky, mm. a little salty, and we have our fatty and lean sides. So, mm. amen. Amen. That, amen. That was a that was a great tie-in. That was a back great. to Texas way to I do bring. What it. I can. Yeah. Way to bring uh, it back full circle. I mean, we could end the show off of that one. I mean, That's that was right. perfect. That's been a solid five minutes. It's kind of like for you know. A br- <laughs> A brisket's kind of like the Trinity, guys. Um, you know, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> Derek's face, Derek. You're, we're lucky that Derek's internet is kind of intermittent right now because uh, the the stank face that you just got, Matt, uh, with almost stepping into a bad Trinitarian analogy. Uh, Der- Derek, don't throw your computer on the ground. That, that that's honestly that's uncalled for. Um, just went uh oh oh man well uh, he's not going to be able to participate in the show if he's busting up all of his recording equipment we'll give him a few minutes to get things sorted out i think he's mad just because matt's analogy was not included in his tome of Derek bright's trinitarian analogies that compendium that was just released and that was not one that he used was the brisket analogy what a missed it'll, opportunity it'll, uh it'll and, come out in the revised edition guys don't you worry good. That's well, see, good. it's a good thing, too, that Derek is is having trouble with his Internet, because I don't even know if he believes in the doctrine of election. Pretty sure that he's like down, you know, one of those uh, Molinists or something like that. One of those mill knowledge adherents. We'll talk about that a little bit more on the show. But, uh, Sean, it's it's question 13, correct? It's question we, 13 we're doing today. We are here at question larger catechism question number 13 this morning. Yes, sir. So let me go ahead and read that for our listeners benefit. Uh, and in case y'all don't know, we always post the uh, relevant catechism question and answer in the show notes uh, on your podcast feed as well. So you can have that as an easy reference, hopefully, as you're listening along. But here we are, larger catechism question number 13. What hath God especially decreed concerning angels and men? Answer, God, by an eternal and immutable decree, out of his mere love, for the praise of his glorious grace, to be manifested in due time, hath elected some angels to glory, and in Christ hath chosen some men to eternal life, and the means thereof. And also, according to his sovereign power, and the unsearchable counsel of his own will, whereby he extendeth or withholdeth favor as he pleaseth, hath passed by and foreordained the rest, to dishonor and wrath, to be for their sin inflicted to the praise of the glory of his justice. So here we are, friends, talking about some of the most profound, mysterious, worship-inducing 
silence inducing in many cases. Sometimes we, we come away to doctrines like this and we feel like Job uh, at the end of God's long discourse in, in rebutting Job, where we just want to cover our mouth or cover our, put a, place our hand over our mouth and cover our mouth as we stand in, in stunned and awed silence. But despite the profundity and despite the mystery behind this, this is a doctrine that has been revealed. So the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever. So in Holy Scripture, God has revealed this teaching, this truth, and this doctrine. So we'll do our best to uh, study it as it has been so helpfully framed and summarized here in the larger catechism. Now we're talking a, a bit about the doctrine of election, and I'll share a brief anecdote and then punt it over to one of you guys to help get the discussion rolling. Uh, this has nothing to do, lest there be any misunderstanding, uh, with any sort of political system. Uh, I, when I was in college, um, I was home for the summer, and I was uh, back visiting my home church. And I think in the summertime, they'd do an 8.30 service, then have an 11 o'clock service. And so I'd, I was getting there around 10.30 or so, getting ready to walk into the, to the 11 o'clock service. And uh, the, uh, an elderly saint, elderly lady, she was walking out, and I greeted her and we had our pleasantries and exchanges. And I said, well, how was the service today? You went to the early service. I'm going to go into the later service. And she goes, ah, Sean, I am just so tired of the pastor bringing politics into the pulpit. Oh, well, um, I'm sorry to hear that. I, 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 that must be frustrating. I, I haven't heard it myself, but I'll, I'll see, I'll see what I think when I go listen to the sermon and I'll, I'll bear in mind what, what you, what, what you, what you said as well. And I'll, I'll catch you later. All right. And so I walk in and, you know, we go through the service and we sing and we pray and it comes time to the Sometimes it gets to the point of the, the sermon and the pastor begins to preach from Ephesians chapter one on the doctrine of election, the doctrine of election. Uh, I don't know if, if my friend, my elderly friend just wasn't tuned in or wasn't quite uh, alert that morning, but he wasn't talking about the American political election or anything of the sort. He was talking about the doctrine of election. So lest there be any confusion, election uh, has nothing to do with what's happening in the year 2024 here in the United States. We're talking about the election as it pertains to the eternal states and eternal destinies of men and angels. So, Spin, you have framed the question a little bit here for us in some of our preliminary talks as we were off the air, thinking about how we we're going to tackle this question. Any initial thoughts as we begin to, to take a survey, even of the structure, and then as we get on into the content here of question number 13? It is a longer question, uh, much longer than question 12, like what we dealt with. But these, these two sections that I see are God's positively electing angels and men according to the praise of his glorious grace to everlasting life. That's life with him in heaven. And then we deal with the flip side or the inverse of electing unto everlasting life and what we'll call the decree of reprobation, those who uh, God has chosen to, the catechism will say, pass over and allow them to suffer the just deserts of their sin uh, in hell. So the two things that really jump out at me as we look at this question um, is election unto everlasting life is for the praise of his glorious grace and the passing over of others, therefore ordination to dishonor and wrath, that is to the praise of his glorious justice. So grace and justice, uh, election and reprobation, I think we'll kind of take the question in those two parts. But anybody have any thoughts about this first half of the question? There's a little bit of overlap from the question before, mm -hmm. where he talks about this decree of election 
is according to the eternal, outside of time, and immutable decree of God. So God's decree does not change. He does not course correct. And he also doesn't consult outside sources and have, you know, sort of this angelic cabinet where he says, hey, guys, you know, what do you think that I should do? I really don't know what I ought to be doing here. So can I get some wisdom and some counsel from you? No, the catechism says that it's according to the counsel of his own will that he does what he does, what he decrees uh, comes to pass. So that's overlapping with 12. Did you all see anything kind of riffing on 12 or anything distinct in this question that you wanted to highlight for the listeners? Yeah, um, Spin, you brought up something that I wanted to mention uh, with that uh, past couple of comments that you made because you know we're, we're still in uh, the realm of the doctrine of God. And so his decrees, um, specifically his election and uh, his passing by, as the catechism says here in question 13, are going to have the same attributes that our God does, right? So, you know, eternal, uh, everlasting, does not have a beginning or an end, immutable, as you said, it does not change. And then this this great uh, idea, especially when we talk about the the gracious election of our God concerning angels and men, this idea of he's doing it out of his mere love. Um, you know, Charnock says, that the doctrine of election flows from his infinite treasury uh, of wisdom and mercy that that extends from in himself. Uh, I think that's in his uh, attributes, the existence and attributes of God. And so uh, when we think about his uh, mere love, um, and this is something that Voss brings out too in his commentary, is that he's under no obligation to elect any of the angels to glory nor is he under any obligation to elect men unto salvation. Um, he is doing it through a, a eternal and eternal and immutable uh, decree in and of himself, uh, because, uh, like you said, uh, because he desires his own glory. And so his action of election, his action of justice, uh, is all going to glorify his name. Um, and so I love that little phrase, that mere love uh, that that reveals to us that he's under no obligation to act in these ways, um, which and, is great. And to piggyback off that, Matt, and then I'll, I'll back off this one, because I love that Westminster keeps telling us about the motivations and the goodness of God that is behind the decrees, because that is where Adam and Eve got off the rails immediately. God had decreed, and in time, he commanded Adam and Eve, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what was that suggestion planted by Satan in the heart and in the minds of Adam and Eve? God wants to keep you from a good thing. God isn't good. Uh, he's a killjoy. He doesn't want you to be happy. And so they question God's character. And so, so often what people will do is they'll look at their life, They'll view providence and say, well, these things are evil. These things are, are not good. And so therefore, I'm going to infer backwards that God must not be good, and that God's toying with me, and that he's not loving, and that he's uh, just you know, playing with me like, like a master puppeteer. And, and that's not the case. So the catechism, because I think lots of people will struggle with how God can be sovereign over whatsoever comes to pass, especially 
hard providences and evil in this world. Mm -hmm. But the catechism just keeps reemphasizing that the character of God is good, that love is behind everything that he does, everything he decrees and every decree that he executes in time. You know, one of the things I want to say is it, it seems like Westminster is taking the doctrine of election that they're describing here, and they're reconciling it with the doctrine of redemption within time. So election, pre-temporal, atemporal, I suppose you might want to say, and then uh, salvation or redemption within time, Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verse 3. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. It's almost the same language there. Mm. Whenever Westminster says, out of his mere love, they're trying to get their head around and their heart around this Greek phrase, that we translate the love with which he loved us, the love that was motivated or had its impetus simply out of the purity and the eternality of the heart of God. Nothing else, nothing intrinsic to the creature, nothing uh, foreseen, foreknown, uh, only and purely out of his heart abounding in love. It's almost a thing undescribable uh, in, in its essence. It just simply is. It's the the beating heart of God that presses him uh, to elect anybody, any of his creatures, uh, to his eternal favor. And it's a really sweet and wonderful thing. Uh, and really by me pointing out that, that Westminster is seeing these both of these things kind of cohering is simply to say that Westminster doesn't allow its pre-temporal uh, theology uh, to become philosophic, but rather mm. ordered and directed by the structure of God's revealed will in the scriptures. And so uh, it, it, it ought to be an encouragement to us. So, I, you know, I want to say that I see this out of his mere love functioning as the impetus of God's election. And then the purpose of God's election in those two parts that uh, Spin pointed out to us for the praise of his glorious grace. And then close at the closing statement for uh, the praise of, of the glory of his justice, these two things showing the trajectory. And where do we get that? Well, we get it from Scripture. We get it from Romans uh, chapter 9, don't we? Uh, where, let me see, so I don't misquote uh, this. Yeah, here it is. So Romans chapter 9, where you've got this description about uh, the justice of God and the Apostle Paul going and and approaching uh, specifically this this uh, question of, is God good? Can God uh, make some vessels for dishonor and some uh, vessels for honorable use? And he goes on in verse 22, chapter 9, 22, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, verse 23, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. And so I, I think it ought to encourage us to see these two things, not only being confessional uh, and catechetical, but being derived directly from the formula of Scripture. You know, Nick, one of the things that, you know, catches my attention in this uh, this question is is how the, the catechisms gives a, a distinguishment between the angels of heaven and the salvation of God's people, God's elect. Um, and, and just to piggyback on this idea of encouragement for the people of God, you know, when we, when we talk about the mere love of God to elect 
uh, men to glory, um, it talks about this this distinguishment between the angels and the the men or the people. Um, and and in and of that, you know, Voss brings out in his in his commentary that God simply elects angels to glory, then prevents them from ever falling into sin or being deceived by Satan at the great fall. Um, but how much more uh, do we see God's mere love for his people in the election of us as God's chosen? Because now we have uh, Christ's righteousness uh, as our and, and atonement as our justification. We have Christ's spirit and Christ's word working in our sanctification with the future promise that in glory we will be like Christ. You know, one of the things that uh, is, is such, a, such an encouragement to me um, and is so often misunderstood, especially at things like funerals where we say, or not we, hopefully, we don't say this, but we hear people say, well, now they're like the angels, right? No, in heaven at glory, we will be like Christ, co-heirs with our elder brother Jesus. Um, and so we see God's mere love in the election of angels, yes, but we see a greater picture of his love for his people and the salvation of his people uh, through uh, Jesus Christ. Um, and that's that's such a uh, such an encouragement to me that that in creation, yes, the angels are magnificent. And I don't want to get into angelology here, but the angels are magnificent, but they are simply a part of God's creation where we as his people are the apple of his eye, the very climax pinnacle of creation as, uh, dis, you know, as declared in Genesis 2. Uh, and so, the the catechism the confession even gives us this this more grandeur picture of the election of God's people even above the angels how much how how much more grand are we going to be uh in heaven as we're elected to eternal life elected to eternal glory than even the angels are uh even now and and that's a that's a great picture of our salvation but i think that Derek has something that he wants to jump in uh, with here. No, no, I'm good. No, I'm just kidding. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so a couple things. You know, I think that one of the mistakes, you know, we hear the term cage stage Calvinist a mm -hmm. lot, and that's a real phenomenon, sadly enough. So yeah. I, I would like to speak to some of the young Calvinists out there and just say that, um, you know, it, it's tempting when you first really get a – handle on the truth of God's election and his eternal decree to make it a hammer where you're always talking about it. And uh, you're always kind of beating this drum of God's sovereign decree because it's so foreign to so many. And uh, I understand that temptation and I love talking about election and, and predestination. And uh, I do talk about it, but we need to be careful in how we approach this doctrine, you know, elsewhere, the standards will tell us that it's a, a mystery that needs to be handled with great care. And uh, anytime you read a reformed author, they are going to seek to handle this topic with care. But it should not be. And I'm going to paraphrase um, someone here. I, I believe I'm paraphrasing Spurgeon. But, you know, it's not a hammer, you know, but it's a pillow that you can lay your head on. And it's because the truth of God's love uh, for us. Jeremiah 31, three, 
you know, I've loved you with an everlasting love. And there's that great quote by Gerhardus Voss. And y'all may have quoted this when my internet was out. So I apologize if I'm repeating it, but it's, it's worth it. Uh, you know, Gerhardus Voss says the greatest proof that God's love for me will never cease lies in the fact that it never began. And that's a remarkable quote that there was never a, a point in time where um, God did not love Matt Adams. Now we may not love Matt Adams, but there's never a point in time where God did not love Matt Adams. He's always loved him. Uh, eternally. That's my wife. It's hard to do Derek. Yeah. Um, we stand with her yeah, in that stand. assessment. Yeah. Yeah. Hashtag us too. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but let me continue on with this uh, idea of God's love. And I think I've brought this up before, but if you were to go to the high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus, which is it's such a rich prayer. It's such a wonderful thing. You know, Robert Murray McShane has that great quote that says, if, if I could hear praying, Christ praying for me in the next room, I wouldn't fear a thousand enemies. And so you go, I wonder what Christ would be praying for me. Well, turn to John 17 and have no fear. Right. And um, so anyways, in John 17, near the end of the, the chapter, Jesus says uh, something pretty remarkable. He says in verse 23, uh, I and them and thou and me, that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. And then he drops down and it said uh, in um, the next verse, the end of verse 24, he says, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. So Jesus says, you have loved them as you have loved me and you love me before the foundation of the world. Well, how much does the father love the son and how long has the father loved the son? Eternity. And he has loved us as long as he has loved the son. I mean, that's a, that's a beautiful truth. And that's really what the doctrine of election ought to bring out. It ought to bring out this, um, you know, comfort of God's eternal love for us and the assurance of our salvation. Um, and so I just want to encourage some of the young reform guys who are, you know, I remember what it was like being in a non-reformed Baptist church and being reformed and it becoming such a contentious issue. And I became a little prickly about it, actually more than prickly about it. And uh, I did a lot of damage. And I did a lot of damage in explaining the doctrine of election to people who were interested because I, I did not turn it into um, something positive the way that the scripture and the, and the history uh, does it. Derek, you brought up a great point and I'm going to, I'm going to punt this to somebody else because I've taught so much already in the first 30 minutes here, but yeah, um, I, yeah I, <laughs> I know you do. Uh, we really shouldn't, <laughs> talk back to back because what we found is our listeners get us confused with our glorious Southern accents. But um, nonetheless, you know, we're talking about these young Cade stage uh, Calvinists. We also need to talk about kind of hyper Calvinism where even after the cage stage, when we're becoming reformed in our theology, we kind of deny something like the free offer of the gospel. Because one of the things that the, the catechism is not saying and actually, it outright denies uh, 
denies this is that God decrees not only the ends, but also the means. And so uh, we are to preach the gospel. We are to be involved in world missions and church planting. And, and, and so one of the pushbacks that we'll often get is, well, if you believe in the doctrine of election, then you shouldn't plant churches. Or, or why are you even preaching the gospel on the Lord's Day? Or, or why are you interested in world missions? Actually, I would argue that the doctrine of election actually gives us motivation to do these things because God said that through these ordinary means, he will do work. His word will go out, not return to us empty. Uh, the, the preacher will carry the good news of the gospel and, and there will be uh, sinners saved and believers sanctified. And so, you know, he's in his decrees, he's decreed the election of sinners, right? But he's also, decreed that a person should hear the gospel, that a person should repent of their sins, believe in Jesus Christ. And, and so, yeah, let's, let's talk about that for a minute. Um, the free offer of the gospel, the means, what do you think, Spin? Well, you're channeling larger catechism 13, because it says that God by an eternal and immutable decree out of his mere love for the praise of his glorious grace to be manifested in due time, hath elected some angels to glory, and in Christ hath chosen some men to eternal life and the means thereof. So when we say that God is sovereign over the ends, that is the outcome, we also believe that he is sovereign and that he has also predestined the very means whereby his elect will be called in. So this is not a rationale for us to sit on our hands because God's going to convert the heathen uh, in some dark corner of the world, you know, no, God has ordained that we should also go and take the gospel. So it's really interesting. I've got two books here in front of me. I've got Debated Issues and Sovereign Predestination by Joel Beakey, which is a deep dive. Roll your sleeves up in that one. But then there's also this great one by John Calvin on election, the doctrine of election translated uh, by Robert White. The Banner of Truth puts it out. And as I'm reading Calvin... And the longer that I'm a Christian, Matt, you pose the question, well, why do we evangelize? Why do we preach on the Lord's Day? Why do we do all of these things if God's you know, sovereign over the end of election? I'm more and more content, the longer that I'm a Christian, to say simply because he says so. We want to find a satisfactory explanation for why God does what he does. But we come back to Romans 9 who are we as clay to answer back to the potter and tell him that uh, his reasons aren't good enough for us? We evangelize simply because God says so, but also as the catechism here says, because that is the means whereby the fullness of the elect are brought in. And I want to read one thing and uh, it kind of piggybacks off of what Nick was talking about earlier with Romans nine, uh, Romans nine, 20, where Paul uh, kind of says to the person who's questioning God's justice and election, and if he's elected some to everlasting life and others to reprobation, then how is that fair? How are they responsible for their sin? This is what Calvin writes. Paul might well have set forth all the reasons advanced by the Sorbonists. Those are uh, uh, men at the University of Paris in Calvin's day. They were not fans of this election stuff. He might well have set forth all the reasons advanced by the Sorbonists and blockheads 
uh, who nowadays try to overthrow God's election. He might well have said, oh, God has chosen those who he foresaw would be faithful, those on whom he would bestow his favors and who he saw would accept them of their free will. Yet he says nothing of the sort. On the contrary, he concludes that it is not for us to inquire. Nevertheless, he teaches that in granting grace, God gives it to those he wills. Is that not the plainest of statements? Let us be content, therefore, with the evidence of Scripture, which we have already cited, and let us be sure that, even without that, all who rise up against God are already self-condemned, so that they need us to provide little by way of proof. So Calvin's just saying, look, we can be content with what Paul has said in Romans 9. He doesn't give this exhaustive explanation. Uh, if God was pleased to reveal that to us, that would have been a golden opportunity to do so. But we know that it's not because he foresaw us as being righteous or that we would exercise our autonomous wills and choose him to quote Spurgeon like uh, our good friend Derek Jacob I loved, Esau I have hated. The really remarkable thing about that verse is not that God hated Esau and loved Jacob. It's that God loved Jacob at all. Mm -hmm. And that's really how we have to approach this doctrine of election. It's, I think, 469 in the Red Trinity Hymnal. Um, oh, Lord, why was I a guest? Mm -hmm. Election doesn't make us proud. Election is the great humbler of the Christian, and it gives us reason to give all praise and glory to God. Yeah, how sweet and awesome is the place. Each of us cries with grateful tongue, Lord, why was I a guest? Spin, I'm just proud of you, because you mentioned a few moments ago you have two books. I'm proud of you. You have two books now. That's great. The I'm, I've graduated from the picture books. By the way, I mean, if you can publish an adult book with pictures, I'm very satisfied with that. I love me some diagrams. Bonus points if you get color in there. Don't you I mean, like anagrams too? I don't believe I, I don't believe in those. I don't believe in those anagrams um, and all that. You know, personality stuff, whatever you call that. So, if I could jump in here, um, there's another great Spurgeon quote that talks about, um, you know, if um, God had placed a, a yellow stripe on the backs of all the elect, then I'd spend the rest of my life lifting up shirt tails. And, um, you know, the sovereignty of God and, uh, and election really fuels evangelism uh, because we believe that God saves sinners and that he has a people to be saved. Right. He has an elect people. And so we can preach the gospel. And uh, as I said, I think I said this last episode, but we can preach the gospel promiscuously, you know, to everywhere, everyone, everywhere all the time, you know, and know with confidence that God will save sinners. So we can call them. And, and I think part of it, and I don't want to get on a huge rant about this, um, but I think part of it is we also in the evangelical church today have been conditioned to preach the gospel in a way that's not biblical. Um, and we command people to repent and to place their trust in Christ. And um, that's what we ought to do. But I think sometimes the way that the modern evangelical church 
preaches the gospel is not helpful. So I just want to throw that out there, make sure that we're, we're doing it the way the apostles did it. Well, that's right. And I, this is going back to something that Matt was said a few minutes ago about <clears throat> the, the motive or the impetus for missions and evangelism and church planting and the doctrine of election, because when it comes right down to it, why do missions or evangelism or gospel preaching or church planting at all, unless I believe that the power is in God? Because the doctrine of election is true. Why, why bother? Why bother planting a church when I don't have any confidence in my own skill set to persuade anybody? Why preach when I don't have any confidence in my own persuasive rhetoric uh, rhetoric to persuade anyone to believe? I don't. The power is not in me. The power is not my strategy. The power is not in the nice personalities of lots of Christians everywhere. The power is not in uh, media campaigns or strategic thinking or whatever slick marketing we might attempt to do, whether it's verbal or otherwise, the power is in the gospel. The power is in God. The power is because he has decreed to elect sinners to saving faith and unto eternal life. That's why we go. I don't have any confidence in what I can do. I'm just going to do what God says, but I don't have any confidence in my own abilities. But that's why we plant. That's why we evangelize. That's why we do missions. That's why we go around the world. That's why we preach the gospel, because we believe God's power really is at work, and it really does save sinners. Without that confidence, I've got nothing. Yeah, Sean, I know I said I was going to be quiet less than 10 minutes ago, but... Well, you, you're a pathological liar, so this is to be expected. <laughs> you, you, you touched on one of my soapboxes, right? Um, because, you know, one of the things that has happened in the evangelical church today is that we have church planning coaches, we have church growth models, um, we, you know, we, we have, um, all, you know, we have all of these agencies and and you know statistics and everything and and all of them prove to fail you know trust the trust the statistics right trust the science it proves to fail uh, if we're not performing the ordinary means of grace if we're not preaching the gospel if we're not praying if we're not uh, if if we're not you know, administering the sacraments, it's going to fail. And, and so when we see church plants fail, um, the first thing we should ask was, well, were you attending the word of God? Were you rightly dividing the truth? I mean, absolutely, Matt, because, you know, one of the things that's going to be said of, of church plants that uh, do or don't uh, flourish is, well, there was a strategy mistake or they didn't, uh, they didn't do this at the right time, or maybe they went and had a worship service too early. Uh, but quite frankly, if we're going to be biblical about the way we think uh, about the elect being called to the Lord, uh, people coming from darkness into light, uh, we have to simply let our ministry philosophy and our understanding of salvation be reflected by the scriptures. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and to the Greek. The question always ought to be not specifically about strategy, but rather was the gospel proclaimed? Because if it is, that's the power of God. Nothing else saves anyone but the Lord in the working of his gospel through the power of the Holy Spirit. So, Nick, are, am, am, I, am I correct in understanding that Acts chapter 2 did not say, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' demographic study? Is that right? 
you know, it would seem. And it also doesn't say that they devoted themselves to small groups. It doesn't say they devoted themselves to, uh, you know, bacon and chocolate and bourbon tastings or anything like this. Instead, it is the power of the gospel. Um, as a church planter, I mean, you can see this gets me worked up. People ask the question, international missionary, church planter in a city of the world. Uh, what are you doing? And people always want to hear the the interesting story. Well, it's not that interesting, except that it's the story of the gospel. I preach. Our church preaches. It shares the gospel. And uh, that's how the church is growing. And that's how people are redeemed. There's nothing strategic about it except the strategy of the cross. And, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the prayers and to the breaking of bread. Look at the way that the apostle Paul planted the church in Thessalonica. Right. He mm. went to a synagogue of the Jews, as was his custom. And when Paul went in on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. He did not take two years to do demographic studies before he started preaching the gospel, opening up God's word and bringing people to the cross of Christ. And, and, and this you see it. It works. And I mean, it almost works like that's how God planned it, that these were the appointed means whereby he's going to call his people out of darkness and into light. So having never planted a church before, uh, I, I can say even from an established church perspective that God blesses his church when we avail ourselves of the means that he has promised to bless for the calling in of sinners and the building them up in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. It's question, I think, 89. Uh, how does God make it the reading, but especially the preaching of the word, an effectual means of converting sinners? So uh, why would we do anything else, Ben? Like, I mean, that's that's the question that I just want to, you know, just scream from the top of my lungs is why would we commit ourselves to sitting in a coffee shop for a year or doing art shows around, you know, Japan or, or, you know, I mean, or something like that. Why wouldn't we do the very thing that God said he will work through the ordinary means? Why wouldn't we preach the gospel? Why wouldn't we pray? Why wouldn't we uh, rightly administer the sacraments? Dr. Kelly, Doug Kelly, my predecessor here in Dillon has taken some heat from, from telling a church planner, the first thing that he ought to do when he hits the field is start a prayer meeting and a worship service. I mean, it flies in the face of everything that these church planting coaches want to want to say. And we need to move on from this soapbox because we got to talk about this passing by language. We do. But, but we, we, you know, we do. it's just one of the things that's really passionate for all of us, I think. Well, and I just, you know, there's a lot of legitimate critique that we could give regarding missiology and things of that nature relevant to what's the doctrine that's in this catechism question. But I also want to say by word of encouragement, because we've got a lot of listeners who are from small congregations in the middle of nowhere uh, who are of modest means. They've got church buildings that are 150 years old. The carpet is dirty and needs to be replaced they have a small budget, small attendance, and a lot of days they wake up discouraged. Does it even make a difference? Does what we're doing even matter? Does it even work? And the answer, brothers and sisters, is yes. The preaching of the gospel works. Evangelism works. You're heralding the good news of Jesus Christ. You're ministering to your people out in the middle of nowhere and backwoods, wherever, works. Why? Because the doctrine of election is true. 
Christ Amen. saves sinners. God saves sinners through his appointed means because the doctrine of election is true. You can get up in the morning, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, and keep on praying and keep on preaching and keep on seeking to persuade and keep on reaching out because you believe that God by his Holy Spirit is effectively blessing and attending to those efforts because the doctrine of election is true. He will use your feeble efforts and mine to save sinners unto himself, all whom he's appointed to eternal life. It works because the doctrine of election is true. You know, while while this may be a rabbit trail, this is an application of the doctrine of election. Some people want to say that this is, um, you know, one of those doctrines that's bound up in philosophy. It doesn't really have effect because election is a thing in the hands of God and his power and his power alone affects it. That's absolutely true. But for the Christian, it is the assurance of success of ministry. It has to be the very groundwork by which we look at what the Lord is doing and participate in it and have absolutely no grief over laboring for him, but rather be able to, to simply know that the Lord is in this and he's succeeding. And I want to just say where this confronts the church today and the broader ministry perspective, or even the experience of the evangelistic mission of an individual Christian, uh, it really is this, that this is telling us that it's in the hand of God to redeem or harden. And the world never, ever wants us as evangelists to harden anybody. We're supposed to only convince, only bring people uh, into the fold. But, but really, the evangelistic task divides the, the wheat and the tares, uh, those who are elect and those who are reprobate. It calls the sheep into the sheepfold of God. And you know what it does? It beats the wolves in the testimony of the gospel. Uh, it's going to... It's going to have that effect. And anyone that's engaged in faithful ministry simply needs to know that. This is the reality of what Christ calls us to. This isn't just Westminster. This is Romans. This is Romans chapter 9. This is God softening the heart of Moses and hardening the heart of Pharaoh. It's the reality of God's revealed will for redemption. And, and I just want to say, I think more people in church planting or missions or evangelism or the average Christian just living as a missionary across the street um, they're, they're often downcast over the failure or what they perceive as the failure of evangelistic ministry because people reject the gospel. Right. But I want to tell you it's part and parcel of it. Yeah. It is, it is 50% of the task. No, that's right. And we, we need to get on with the, the latter part of, of the question here, but, uh, we, we hope that this will put some steel in the spine of folks who are discouraged or doubting or uncertain as to whether their efforts are worth it, whether they make a difference or whether they need to try something else because this, whatever it is, doesn't seem to be quote unquote working. Uh, Paul said, uh, Nick, you were just mentioning Romans. I always think of Romans 1.16. I am not ashamed of the gospel for what? My skill? <laughs> My, my rhetoric, my winning personality, the the persuasive powers of of different folks to to win people over to a different mindset. No, no, it the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It has the power, not me. So keep on doing what we're doing in the means God has ordained, because God will accomplish the purposes and the ends for which He has ordained it. Uh, Matt, let me punt it to you. I think you were going to segue us into the next section of our our wonderful question here. Yeah, so you know, one of what Nick is hitting on here is there's always two responses to the gospel, right? Praise mm -hmm. God that as we preach, uh, as we evangelize, the Holy Spirit enacts first in God's people, where even their 
repentance, turning from their sin and turning to Christ in faith is an act of God uh, as as he calls them to repentance in his word, as he fills them up with his spirit so that they can turn from their sin and turn towards him. Uh, we have that response. Uh, we have the softening of hearts, but we also have the hardening of hearts. You look through the Acts narrative, and anytime the apostles are preaching, you have those who believe and those who reject. You have those who God has softened and those who God has hardened, or as the Catechism says here, passes by. And so, uh, Sean, do you want to uh, kind of lead us into this uh, doctrine of, of eternal judgment or or, you know, passing the passing by of sinners by yeah. God. Yeah. And this is sort of tying in a couple of different threads here. We, we, we see how question 13, obviously, and intentionally, very naturally flows immediately after question 12, because question 12 ends with that little clause, especially concerning angels and men. And then question 13 opens up with, well, what has God especially decreed concerning angels and men? And this, this ties in with what we were thinking about last episode of, there are elect angels and there are fallen angels, much like there are elect men and there are fallen or unregenerate men. So the, the catechism has in view here uh, both of those, if you will, classes of beings, the the men and the angels. And we've already talked about that a bit, but still this this gets into it. It's relevant as well. Um, but God has that there are those fallen angels who participated with Satan in the rebellion. And so they have fallen. They have they are they're given over to their the sins and lusts. Uh, likewise, all men fallen uh, in Adam's fall, we sinned all, but there are some many, <laughs> a multitude, which no man can number. Revelation tells us that God has appointed unto eternal life, that he has elected uh, unto himself, that he would redeem them out of their sin and death and hellbound path. Uh, and, the, and that's what this, and that's what this catechism question is helping us get our, our heads around is, well, in, since we were just thinking about the doctrine of election being true, and that those whom God has appointed unto eternal life will respond accordingly in time as God has ordained it. So there, there will come a time when that sinner, you, me, somebody else, will hear the good news of the gospel, whether it's in a, uh, in a worship service and they hear the preaching or they're in a Bible study or they're having a conversation, an evangelistic conversation with a friend, and they're talking about the things of God and, and the good news of Christ, and God by his Holy Spirit will prick their heart and they'll be drawn to faith and they'll uh, there'll be that 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 occasion. That's just one example uh, of a hypothetical. So that happens in time, as God has appointed it. But there are many other cases where that never happens. Someone will sit under preaching for years. Someone will read the Bible, perhaps, for years, and they'll never come to faith in Christ. They will never show an interest in the things of God. They'll never confess or profess faith. So what do we do with that? Well, we see here uh, that, as the Catechism says, God in, in, determined in his own will, the counsel of his own will, his own determining whether he wishes to extend favor to those dead sinners who are sinners who are dead in their trespasses and sins and bring them to new life, or whether he wishes to withhold that favor. And it's utterly up to his own pleasure. No one can tell what, what God what to do. If there was anyone who could tell God what to do and he would be compelled to act, though, then that person would be God, not God. So according to his own pleasure, he either extends favor to regenerate men, to effectually summon them to new life, or to withhold it. And it's interesting there, that language of withholdeth, because it's, I think it's helpfully 
lest we look upon God as some sort of arbitrary cruelty of, well, he gives nice things to somebody, he doesn't give nice things to others. Well, the, the fact of the matter is, is that we all, we all have earned and deserve our damnation. We all stand condemned before him, uh, as Jesus uh, so helpfully re reminds us, even there in John's Gospel, chapter 3. We all stand condemned. We all are dead in our father, Adam, both of our of original sin and our actual transgressions, as the catechism puts it. So we're dead because of our father, Adam's sin. We're dead because of our own sin that we did, uh, of our own of our own wicked hearts and wicked wills. And so we deserve damnation, and we have it. But God, for many, for many, many myriads, he extends favor. So how, and, and the, the catechism goes on, uh, by his own will he hath passed by and foreordained the rest to dishonor and wrath. So there are those that he has, as the, as the catechism puts it, he has predestined unto life, but then there are others that he hath passed by and foreordained the rest to dishonor and wrath. And so there's this language there, this image, I think, that's being conjured up of, and, and I want to say something about the distinction between predestination and foreordination, if I don't forget here in just a moment. But it is interesting here that it, it paints this picture of there's this mass of humanity that all stands damned and condemned because of our own wicked and stupid sin. And God is drawing many to himself, but then there are others who he is simply opting, he is simply willing to pass by. He He's not extending uh, that favor to call them to new life. He's simply passing them by, going on his way. The king of glory passes on his way. Why he has determined to do that, we don't know. We do not know the mind of God. Inscrutable are his ways, but he has determined to pass them by. He has foreordained these this mass of wicked sinners to dishonor and wrath, the catechism says. And it's interesting because Voss, I think it was in his comments, maybe even on the previous question, on question 12. Yes, he, he does. But this ties in here as well with question 13. Uh, he makes a distinction, and I think a helpful one, between the language of foreordination and predestination. He says this, foreordination is a term for all God's decrees concerning anything, whatever that comes to pass in the created universe. And that includes the eternal fate of uh, sinners, unregenerate sinners who never come to faith in Christ. But then Voss says, predestination concerns God's decrees regarding the eternal destiny of angels and men. So there's there's an interesting uh, distinction there, and I think that the the catechism is is even making that distinction as well. Where it'll often use the language of predestination with reference to God's elect, and so it conjures up images and connotations of mercy and favor and grace and undeserving and kindness. And it often the catechism and the, and the Westminster standards will often use the language of foreordained uh, with regard to uh, the effect that it has on the non-elect and giving over to dishonor and wrath. So that's just an interesting choice of phrasing, interesting choice of language that we might be mindful of as we read through the standards and read through the catechism, just something to be on the lookout for. Well, the, the language there too of passing by you know, I was reminded of somebody giving me the illustration of, you know, if I hold a ball in my hand, if I withdraw my hand, what's going to happen to the ball? Gravity is going to pull that ball down. And that's something like a picture of reprobation is that God just allows us to go the way that we were going by virtue of being born in trespasses and sins. You know, he just allows us to suffer the consequences uh, of our original and actual sins, but just letting us go that way versus the decree of election is that God's doing something that's contrary to nature. It's like you're lifting the ball up, right? That there's something supernatural that needs to happen 
to us in order for us to be elected unto everlasting life, and that's God's choosing from before the foundation of the world to uh, justify us, uh, adopt us, sanctify us, right? So something supernatural needs to happen there, but we would say that those persons who were reprobated, it's only natural, right, by virtue of who they are and the fact that they uh, are enemies of God. So I think that that how I can how can I say this that the manner or we would say that God doesn't have to do or decree the kind of work um, to reprobate a sinner in the same way that He decrees the kind of supernatural work that it takes to uh, save a sinner uh, in time. So, and all of this is as Sean said to the praise of His glorious justice. That is at least helps, uh, that is a helpful answer maybe to the question, why would God allow evil? Because otherwise we wouldn't see his justice. Uh, We would see certainly the goodness of God uh, had the fall not been decreed by him, but that we see that he is a just God and that he punishes wickedness, that uh, there is no darkness in in him at all and that he doesn't indulge darkness in any of his creatures, but that he is holy and so holy and so gracious that he gives the righteous Christ to cleanse the defiled sinner of their sin. That, and only that way, can we really see the justice of God highlighted as we do throughout redemptive history. Um, I don't know, Derek, what do you think? I, I love I love just putting him on this. It's my favorite thing. It's my favorite pastime <laughs> on the podcast. <laughs> well, um, I think that... Uh... You nailed it and summed it up perfectly. And uh, <laughs> I am very encouraged by all that you said. Uh, you know, there this subject is one that you could have, a, you know, you could kick open a can of worms about different things. And uh, I'm tempted to kick open a can of worms, but I'm not going to because that would not be helpful for our podcast. Um, but I think that this doctrine is profoundly biblical and it is something that if you just honestly stick with the text of scripture, um, a lot of questions will be answered. And, um, you know, it's, I understand it's a difficult thing to talk about those who would be um, damned to to hell forever because uh, they were not, chosen for election, um, in Christ. And, uh, however, as, um, Spin just said, ultimately, uh, that's up to the Lord and, uh, he, his ways are higher than our ways. And you don't want to find yourself on the side of the objector in Romans nine, right? You don't want to, you know, if you find yourself asking the same questions or giving the same objections that Paul, uh, brings up in Romans nine, then uh, I think that's a good sign that perhaps you need to um, to do a deep a deep search on this issue, search the scriptures, and and search the Lord in prayer to uh, to help you. You know, one of the one of the things that you know maybe even some of our listeners will well have a good day, on. friends. Thanks for tuning. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Is, that out. I just wanted to. Uh, I know. I know. Is is human responsibility and and just to kind of reemphasize some, a point that Spin was making here. Um, God is punishing uh, those who reject Him 
fairly and rightly. Okay, so he they are damned to eternal hell because of their rejection of the gospel. They are responsible for their rejection of the gospel, um, and and that would be the case for all of us. Uh, unless uh, God graciously and supernaturally intervened by his word and spirit. And so, um, yeah, there is a there's a harmonization here between uh, God's sovereignty and human responsibility that's not negated within this catechism question at all. Um, and so just wanted to to draw that out a little further. We, we butt up against the extremities of time and eternity and mystery when we're, when we're trying to get our heads around a catechism question like this. And, and like I alluded to earlier, many times we're just reminded of our own creatureliness and uh, are, are warned and guard. We need to be on guard against our own kind of arrogance that wh- how dare we seek to instruct God, to question God, to tell God how he ought to do things or what God ought to do. Uh, and like I alluded to earlier, it's we, we really in, in confronting this doctrine in, in attempting to better understand it, we need to bow before God with reverence and humility, realizing we're never going to fully understand it, uh, this side of eternity. Uh, and we need to be like Job and cover our mouth. Who, who, who is like you, O Lord? Not me, not this creature. I, I would dare not seek to instruct you in terms of how you have ordained things to be and how you have set uh, how you have set in the counsel of your own will the things to shake out uh, for eternity. But the temptation is, I think, for we as creatures to, in our arrogance, try to rise above our creatureliness and think, well, this is unfair. I will now evaluate. I will now render a, pronounce, uh, render a pronouncement of justice on God's ordaining of things. Uh, I, will, I will give an analysis here, and we, we must not do that. We, treat, we seek to understand it. Uh, we seek to certainly to embrace it and to confess it. Uh, but we dare not try to render a, a kind of judgment or analysis or re- review of it. We need to bow in, hum- in humility and reverence. Well, I think that's a great place to end and uh, a great exhortation to all of us, uh, every every believer, uh, to bow in humble reliance upon the Lord and to search our own hearts and, and to search the scriptures. And, uh, you know, God has promised that if we lack in wisdom, we just need ask and he will he will grant us wisdom. And, and that includes to help uh, understand his word and his ways better. Well, I hope you've enjoyed uh, this edition of Larger for Life. And uh, on behalf of everyone, with the exception of Spin, uh, who does not matter, uh, we hope to see you next time. God bless and cheers. You have been listening to Larger for Life, a podcast on the Westminster Larger Catechism brought to you by the Blue Ridge Institute and Birmingham Theological Seminary. For more information about this podcast, please visit our website on Podbean at largerforlife.podbean.com where you can subscribe to the show in the podcast platform of your choice and browse past episodes. You can also follow us on Twitter or Facebook. On Twitter, you can follow us at Larger for Life Podcast and on Facebook, you can follow us at facebook.com slash largerforlife. Be sure to tune in next time and join us again at Larger for Life.